The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Listen to God's Word as I read 1 Peter 2, beginning at 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And this is God's holy word. I know it was more than 20 years ago that a news story caught my eye and just impressed itself, I guess, on my memory It was out in Idaho. The individual, I can only remember the last name, that it was a Mr. Weaver, and he wasn't from Lancaster County, as many weavers are. But this Mr. Weaver was one who called himself a free man. He had a cabin somewhere in the mountains of northern Idaho, And he had made a lot of public declarations, attracted a lot of attention to himself. And he called himself, as I said, a free man and said that he was not subject to the laws of the United States. And he rejected all federal authority. Did not pay taxes, I guess, for a good period of time. And that, of course, drew public attention to him. What began, unfortunately, as a tax dispute turned into federal agents coming to his property, and violence erupted in which Weaver's wife and son and a federal officer were all killed. So the enduring irony of this incident of a self-declared free man was the man, as I remember the cameras focused on him, being led away to jail in handcuffs and leg irons. Mr. Weaver learned that human freedom is never absolute and never without boundaries that must be observed upon this earth. There are many in our society who join this man in one way or another in crying out for their version of my rights. Give me my rights. 
Many who will say, well, the Constitution demands this right or that right for me, often bending the Constitution so out of shape that the founding fathers would never recognize that they wrote anything about the particular rights that people are declaring today, such as the so-called right of people to decide their own gender and use any bathroom they desire. True freedom becomes a monster when you demand that it simply means unbridled license to do your own thing. When people declare anything goes or anything that I say goes, civil anarchy is soon a result to be dealt with. In Western democracy, we know that freedom means the delicate balancing of individual rights and dignity over against the good of the whole society. And this means there must be curbs on your individualism. If you are a person who likes to drag race automobiles, you need to understand that you will not drag race in a school zone and many other kinds of things where your rights or your ideas of being free must bow before the rights of others. One of the things we find is that, spiritually speaking, we are most free when we bow in voluntary subordination to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ doesn't give us absolute license, but he gives us true freedom to become his bond slaves. And the gospel says when we are his, walking in obedience to him, then we really are free indeed. Peter began what some commentators say is really the second portion, second major portion of this epistle where I began reading today, chapter 2, verse 11. Now you say, I look at my Bible, wait a minute, how is that the beginning of something? It's the middle of a, a paragraph, it's the middle of a chapter. But there are those, of course, I think you know that the chapter divisions of our Bible are not divinely inspired. They were put there by others many centuries after the text was written. Peter begins chapter, or chapter 2, verse 11, by addressing his flock as beloved and going back to the definition he had for them all the way back at 1-1 when he called them elect exiles of the dispersion. Here he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now he has some ethical or moral instruction for them. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's moving out of defining what a Christian is into how a Christian behaves. And he'll be doing that for the remainder of this chapter and on into chapter 3 and some more beyond yet. Talking about obedience to government relating to a pagan society that is largely immoral, uh, how husbands and wives relate to one another in chapter 3. So it's more behavioral and ethical now than it is theological definition. I think the governing verse of this passage that I read is verse 16. Even though I'm dealing mostly with the first part of the passage, 16 sort of puts its stamps its theme on the whole. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as the servants, or you can translate the slaves of God. The slaves of God. That seems to be something that most people wouldn't think much about, but that's my first point to make quickly. 
we need an understanding that Christian freedom does live in bondage to God. Now, we enter this world in bondage to ourselves and in bondage to sin, the Scripture says. One man one time said, every time we pass a full-length mirror, we pause and hold a quickie little worship service. I don't know if you did that today. But we are in bondage to the love of ourselves and our ego and our way and our will. The Scripture says this is being in bondage to sin and death. John 8.32 has Jesus talking with Jewish Pharisees who thought they were the experts on the Bible, and they sneeringly looked down on Jesus as a rustic man who just didn't know anything compared to themselves. And Jesus told them that they needed to know the truth, and the truth would make them free. And they right away bridled at that and said, well, what are you talking about? We've never been anyone's slaves. We're free. And Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's how we're born into this world. That's the Bible's human diagnosis. We are slaves to sin. But the gospel, of course, comes into our experience, and the Bible says the gospel of Christ and the cross is a ransom, a buying of us out of that slavery to sin into a new freedom. Romans 6.6 6 says our old self was crucified with Christ so that we no longer had to be slaves of sin. Our own epistle that we've been studying here, 1 Peter in one nineteen, says that the Father has bought believers, paying with the precious blood of His Son. So would we deny God the prerogative of owning us if he paid for us in the most precious price that could ever be paid? It's not a wrong thing to say we are the bond servants of God. In fact, Paul begins four of his New Testament letters with that very thought in the opening of the letter, that he is God's bond servant. But it's a servitude or a slavery that's entirely different from what we think of slavery and the idea of that's most harsh and, and wrong and sinful manifestations in our history and our society. Almighty God is no tyrant. Belonging to Him actually confers honor and nobility on you, not shame and degradation. And the Christian slave of Christ is one who gladly can accept commands of God because the yoke of God's law, once we are new creations in Christ and the Holy Spirit, is a light and easy and even delightful yoke to bear, not an onerous one. When we surrender to God's ownership of us, temptation and sin certainly remain with us, and we can still be overtaken by these things. But I clung all my life to the simple reminder that while sin remains with me, it does not, in Christ, reign over me. I do not have to look upon it and say, I must obey my passions. I must obey my lower nature. Not anymore, because I belong to Christ and His Holy Spirit is remaking me from within. Now, with that just basic concept of Christians having a freedom in bondage to God, I want to go for most of our time to talk about a second point, that in Christ we have this new freedom to actually choose a moral life, even among a world, amid a world, where that morality is not applauded and not followed. 
What Peter primarily stresses here is things that we ought to deliberately, as new creatures in Christ, be trying to avoid in the strength of the Spirit. Listen to verses 11 and 12 again. As aliens and strangers, in other words, as people who don't belong to the natural course of this culture and this age, as aliens in this culture, abstain. Choose not to participate in the sinful desires which war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that while they may accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God for them. Many of you, like myself, perhaps began your Christian life or you were a child in a, a kind of church that I would have called my childhood church, which preached the gospel of the cross. It would have been called a fundamentalist church, for sure. Because while I heard regularly and heard well that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ, they The sort of part B, I guess, of the Christian message I heard growing up was a rather rigid behavioral code of fundamentalism that many of you would have recognized, particularly being strong, I guess, in the, oh, the mid part of the 20th century, certainly. And, you know, if I were to break that code down or somehow summarize it, it it was a code that told me that no true Christian ever smoked drank alcohol in any form, went to movies or dances, played cards, or chased fancy women. I I never found out what a fancy woman was, but uh, anyway, I wasn't supposed to chase them. And, And that code was imposed on us. Just for example, I can remember approaching our church and and going up there were a set of steps it wasn't handicap access and you had to go up six or eight steps to the main entrance of the church well it wouldn't be too unusual if you were arriving for the main Sunday service to find a man standing over at one side of the steps sort of furtively smoking a cigarette almost like I'm not really doing this don't look at me Uh, and and you said in your fundamentalist mind as you approached the entrance Why, that must be the husband of some serious-minded Christian wife who's been able to drag her husband to church, but he's not a Christian because he's smoking a cigarette. Now, honestly, that was a judgment I made in my mind every time I saw such a person. Why? Because I knew his soul, I knew his works, I knew his testimony? No, he was smoking a cigarette. And a Christian didn't do that. Well, I'm not going to rail against that particularly, but... My point in raising that is that there are some people who have grown up out of that or away from that rigid way of thinking who almost have reacted too much to push themselves in the exact opposite direction. We use a fancy $5 word in theology. The word is antinomian, against the law. Antinomianism is that which says, I'm not regulated by the law. I'm under grace. Don't talk to me about law. And I have evangelical friends who probably grew up similarly to myself who now, today, almost go out of their way to make sure that everybody knows why I drink alcohol. And while I'm certainly not a drunk, uh, I will imbibe whatever I want to imbibe. I'm not bound by any code on that, and I will go to any movies I want to go to. They certainly will have some cultural benefit to me, and so on and so on. In other words, I will indulge many things that someone once told me were wrong. 
because like Pinocchio, I'm singing, there are no strings on me. And I've cast off those restraints as being a big mistake. I'm actually sad for some friends who seem to believe that in order to observe grace, the gospel of grace, that the law has no place at all. We are not made Christians by obeying the law, of course. But once we are new creatures in Christ, the law is not our enemy any longer. It is a code that is our friend. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Christians who are new creations, in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, are able to see the good in the law of God and say, look, I will do this now, not because I'm afraid God will get me, but because it makes my life pleasing and it is a way to follow my Lord. Balanced Christian freedom knows that it needs limitations. To teach it what are worldly indulgences that we can easily go too far with ourselves. I focus on this word that Peter uses here, the word to abstain from anything in this present age that might corrupt our souls or harm our reputation. It means to forego, to put a distance between yourself and such things, to deliberately recognize boundaries and try to observe those boundaries as the Holy Spirit and his new birth in you is guiding you and giving you a new mind. You ought to become more and more a stranger. And remember, Peter kept emphasizing that. You are an exile, a stranger, a sojourner. You don't really belong to this culture, and you should feel alien within it. He's told us, as we looked in a recent week, that you are a distinct people bought for God's possession, a temple in which he dwells. And while you live in this present age and in this present culture, you cannot simply be absorbed by this culture and live according to all of its values and laugh at its jokes and pursue all of its passions. Or you will become like those people who are enslaved to the lowest powers of their nature, no matter how educated they are, no matter how sophisticated they may appear, how well-spoken or kindly or compassionate they are, they are actually slaves of their lower nature. A child of God who knows the living hope of Christ is working in him is able to say, to look at what's going on and what people are doing around him and say, that is not a place where I can please God. That is a, an activity that I have to move away from. There's nothing productive there. There's nothing God-glorifying there. And in fact, such a person will have times of real sense of shame and knowing that we don't belong to what the culture is celebrating around us. I would have to confess to you that I almost never in my lifetime did I feel more a stranger and an alien in American culture as a citizen of the United States than a brief time not so many months ago when our outgoing presidential administration positively gloated with multicolor lights on the outside of the White House over the Supreme Court's abrupt reversal of 3,000 years of the moral definition of marriage between one man and one woman. I was ashamed if a citizen of the world said, oh, you're an American? 
So you agree with that? I would have been ashamed to say I don't feel like an American today. A moral code that many centuries had recognized, not simply from the Bible, but from natural law, from Judaism, even from Islam for that matter, a moral code of what marriage was, was thrown out in the name of a false idol god called tolerance. Core values anchored in the Bible for 3,000 years were repudiated, and we were told we were the ones who were wrong. I was ashamed. And it seemed like it was so very clear I had to separate myself from that culture, and I could not be part of it. The other way in which, a more general way, not one event, but just a more broad way that is still around with me all the time and should be with you, is, is to recognize things in our culture like the rapid advance of technology. You know how, what a fantastic thing the invention of the Internet is? If, if people stand back 500 years from now and they look, let's say beginning with the 20th century through the early 21st, and they look at great developments of Western civilization, they'll say, oh, the automobile, the airplane, and the Internet will be with those. That's how much it has affected our culture. What a fantastic, amazing, stupendous thing the Internet is. The information that it makes available, the research it allows you to do, the communication, things that are at your fingertips. And yet here is that same tool of wonderful technology that ought to cause us to choke in utter disgust when we hear a fact that I I heard this several years ago, so I assume it's only more so now, that 200 new pornographic websites are created on the Internet every single day. 200. 200 would be more than enough to have altogether. And we have thousands available to any 10-year-old boy with a computer. Is technology liberating? Or is it, in fact, does it hold the possibility of being enslaving? to the lowest and most immoral passions and instincts that we have. Technology is neutral. You can't blame the technology. You have to blame those who use it. Now, as cultural exiles in an immoral society, Peter is speaking to us here. He's saying, here's the advice I have. Abstain. Abstain from this. Step aside. Recognize your limits. Build walls. Don't participate. You know, I I remember uh, years back in the Reagan administration when Nancy Reagan had a program to deny drugs. It was a program aimed at youth, and there was a slogan with it. I'm sure some of you will remember Mrs. Reagan popularizing the theme, Just Say No. And I heard and you heard the cat calls of everybody saying, Oh, how naive, how ridiculous, how simplistic. You don't just tell young people to just say no. Well, what do you tell them? Just say yes? It was not naive. It was not simplistic. It was a very basic thing that at least a young person could make a start and be told, it's all right to step aside. It's all right to be different. It's all right to refuse. That's what Peter's doing. Is Peter naive and simplistic when he says there's a time to build a wall, draw a line, keep your distance, don't go there? 
Was Joseph naive and simplistic in the Old Testament? A man who walked in integrity and was honored by the people of an ungodly culture in Egypt? Potiphar thought Joseph had such integrity, he put him in charge of everything. Trusted the man 100%. Run my affairs, run my household, Joseph. You've proven yourself. As an Israelite believer, he was recognized by an Egyptian pagan. But Joseph came into a situation where, his, where Potiphar's wife, who's never identified anyway, I always call her Mrs. Potiphar, decided, here's an attractive young man. I'll take him to my bedroom. And what did Joseph do? He fled. He ran from that situation as fast as he could go. And that was a God-honoring, correct response. What else could the man do? He recognized, here is a line I cannot, I must not cross, and his feet could not move fast enough to get him away from that situation. That was a just-say-no situation, and there's nothing naive about what Joseph did. Is it a difficult thing to abstain from pagan lusts that draw us into immorality? Yes, it can be difficult. Is it impossible? No, absolutely not. Others have done it. Joseph did it. There's a time when you just move yourself out of the situation. And if you say, I cannot possibly do that, I think you are denying the reality of the Holy Spirit and the power of God as you come to him in prayer and ask him to give you strength to be his disciple. You need to train yourself to see where the line is, where that very first onset of a particular sin is, and regard that in your mind as if you were setting your foot into a bear trap and say, I cannot move my foot an inch further towards that thing. Abstaining from this evil. But what else does Peter add here as my third point today? Abstain, he says, from the passions of the flesh, which do what? Wage war against your soul. You need to realize you're in a continuing state of spiritual warfare. The passions of this world are out to get you and to bring you down. And if you take no steps of protection, you are a witless victim. My wife and I often will look at uh, the crime report or, or maybe there's some article in the daily newspaper that will tell about a particular neighborhood where uh, someone came in and went all down the street and uh, burglarized uh, five or six cars on the same block or even several houses. And then, you know, the article will report the the number of things that were taken and so on, and then it will say none of the automobiles were locked. (laughs) I'm sorry, no pity, folks. I have no pity for you. You can't take a basic step like locking your car. I can do that by going... They've made it really easy to lock your car. And if you're burglarized when you don't even bother to lock it, well, I'm not going to call you names, but you're just not very intelligent. (laughs) Why wouldn't you take a simple protection step? And that's what Peter's saying here. Realize the protective steps that you can take against passions which wage war against your soul. You have the Word of God 
Fill your heart, fill your mind with the positive precepts of the Word of God. David wrote in Psalm 119, 45, I will walk at liberty, listen to this, because I love your precepts. You hear what he was saying? I will be a free man because I know your word, and your word is liberating. It's fortifying to my soul. Be vigilant in prayer. Ask for the protection of the Holy Spirit. It might be as simple a thing as this. I heard of a young man, not from our church or anything, but this was from something I read, a young man who recognized he was under a lot of sexual temptation. He was at the crucial teenage phase of his life when that was a real battle, and he had gotten some counsel. What in the world can I do about it? And he did one thing in obedience to his counselor's uh, dictates. He made a big sign and put it up in his room where it would be the first thing that he would see when he woke up in the morning and the last thing he would see at night, recognizing that lust was literally like a wild animal wanting to take hold of him. This This young man's sign said, don't feed the tiger. Don't feed the tiger. Now that's going to get your notice, isn't it? If it's in your bedroom, you say, well, again, naive, simplistic. Well, the young man's making a first step to recognize I'm in a war. And if I'm going to feed those and house those and coddle those who want to kill me or want to destroy me, then I'm lost. First Peter 1.12 says here, we are a watched people. While this spiritual warfare is going on, people are watching, not just other Christians, the cultures watching. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they may accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I assume that day means the final coming of Christ. So maybe your good works, your good life are not going to be vindicated until that final time. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Folks, if you are a Christian and if people know around you where you work, your neighborhood, your family associations, they know that you're a Christian who takes this book seriously, who takes Christ seriously, they are watching you. And they're not so much watching for when you positively do something well. They, they actually expect that of you. What they're watching for is when you fall, when you stumble, when you give a negative example. And as you know, they might gleefully pounce then and say, aha, see what being a Christian means. Look at that. Our conduct is being evaluated by a watching world. And we can do something about it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's another whole matter here, and it it pertains to submitting to governments. And I said to you, I'm I'm seeing that as another matter to deal with separately, so I'm going to come to that, Lord willing, next time. But let me say this in closing. The pinnacle of human freedom was seen in Jesus Christ. There has never been a more supremely free moral individual in the whole universe than the Son of God at the very hour when he was nailed to a cross, could not lower his arms or move his feet, could not remove it physically at least, could not remove himself from that situation. 
Nobody in the whole universe was ever more free because he volunteered to do that. He was not forced to die for you. He did that as a supreme act of his voluntary will to submit to his Father's plan and out of his love for you and me. So freedom for the Christian is not a matter of doing whatever I want. That is absolutely childish. It is a matter of being the bond slave of God and responding in gratitude to him and assuming the yoke of his law, not because it forces me to do something or I have to grovel underneath it, but because I want to do what I ought to do according to his word. I'll let Romans 6.22 conclude it this way. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become the slave of God, the benefit you reap, said Paul, leads to holiness, and the result of it is eternal life. Our Father, I ask that you help us understand that your law is not a moral code that we should be afraid of or rigidly bow beneath, but rather it is a delightful thing that shows us what is your good pleasure. And because of a new creation of Christ at work in us and your Holy Spirit, we can respond to it. I pray for someone who's really struggling, really struggling with the passions of this age that war against their soul. Will you show them where to draw the lines and build the walls? Prompt them when it's time to flee and give them the courage to do it. And may Jesus Christ be honored and praised. Amen.